Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. Let's pick up where we left off. We just finished talking about sediments, and we just did that very brief, dirty demonstration of the soil. Uh, so today we're going to talk, we're moving on from the physical environment to talk about, oops, there we go, uh, to talk about the uh, plant and animal environment, as well as human intervention into the environment. So there are two primary ways that we get at botanical information or floral information. Um, and there's microbotanical and macrobotanical. Microbotanical, as a rule of thumb, microbotanical means things that you can't see with your naked eye. Microbotanical generally requires some sort of magnification or instrumental observation to perform. Microbotanical. These are proxies. I don't know if I explicitly mentioned the word proxy. Anyone remember someone know what a proxy is? Anybody? Yeah. Uh, something you use to get to something else. Right. Uh, you might also say indirect evidence, right? So, for example, the fact that there, well, there's still a little bit of snow outside uh, means that we know that snow on the ground outside today means is a proxy that we know at one time in the recent past it was cold, it was below freezing, and we also know that it precipitated, right? It's a proxy. It's not. We're not standing out there taking a temperature and looking at the precipitation falling, but we know that it happened because the evidence remains behind. Snow is a proxy of previous um, temperature and precipitation. Same thing with um, a lot of these plant and animal environment uh, reconstruction data. These, by knowing, for example, when we get into pollen analysis, uh, we'll know what plants were available, and that can help us reconstruct the environment. Many, uh, I doubt many of us expect to see Oh, evidence of banana trees here in Wisconsin uh, any time in the recent past, in the last you know, 20,000 years. This is a scanning electron microscope image of pollen. I think it, it's just beautiful. These look like cowrie shells. These look like a dog toy that I have, or my dog has, I guess. Right? There's all kinds of different pollen. They're all unique snowflakes. Not quite. Uh, they are all unique to their species or taxa. Palynology uh, is up on the board, P-A-L-Y-N-O-L-O-G-Y. Palynology uh, means the study of dust, literally, uh, but it is particularly meaning the study of pollen. Um, and much of this pollen, right, we see um, plants every spring. Does anyone have pollen allergies? Anybody? A couple? Yeah, so you are probably more attuned to this than the rest of us. Uh, but in the spring, very soon, we'll see on ponds, we'll see that skim, or that scum of, of, of pollen. Um, that 
it sits on the surface for a while because it's so light it doesn't break the surface tension. Eventually, it will sink down into the bottom of the, the lake, and over time it will build up, right? I've kind of been through this before. Builds up layers that can then be taken out uh, by a core. And then uh, once you have the core out of the ground, you take a segment of layers, and you take a sample from each segment, like a square centimeter, or a cubic centimeter, and then you wash it uh, through various um, mechanical and uh, chemical processes to isolate out the pollen. And then you get to spend hours and hours and hours bent over a microscope counting, you know, one uh, pine pollen, two pine pollen, three pine pollen, four pine, you know, then oak and all these different things. You count up the different, sometimes you can get it down to the species, sometimes you can only get it down to the, um, to a, a broader you know, a, a genus or, or, or less specific. But what happens, because we know that this is a sequential um, sediment layers, we can look at a change over time in the local flora. Often you can find carbon in these as well, in the, in the layers, and so we can uh, chronologically tie them into our calendar and put, you know, actual dates on them. So here are some more examples of uh, pollen with their specific uh, taxa related to them. So here's elm, willow, ivy, hazel, alder, birch, oak, lime. This is probably a uh, English, probably an English uh, pollen sample. Um, each one of these plants comes in a different uh, type of environment, right? Uh, if you have larger, older, um, more uh, mature forests, you're going to have different tree pollen than if you have a field that's just been cleared and then abandoned, you're going to have uh, col uh, colonizer plants. They're all going to have different. So, uh, for example, in archaeological um, diagrams, we usually have the most recent at the top and the oldest at the bottom to mimic um, how we find things chronologically. And so here we have the relative amounts, the higher the black bar, the more there is, of these different taxa. And so starting a long time ago, uh, we had natural forest cover. So we have lots of elm, lots of oak. Um, oh, excuse me, lots of pine, elm, and oak. Moderate amount of hazel. And then see, these are uh, what you'd call like colonizers. They come once things uh, get disturbed. Then come humans, or at least come people who are practicing farming and they clear the land by axe and by fire. And we see spikes and declines in different things. So we see a decline in elm. We see some others here go up and down. Um, and we see like a lot of these things getting burned off. Farming comes and we get nettles and grass. Grass, wheat, so things that are being cultivated by farmers. Grasses, they're going to spike. And we see, look at this oak dropping down. And we see that they're not using elm as much. Um, and that pine, alder, and birch are burp, 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 up and down. Then if farming is abandoned, things kind of collapse down. And you can see the forest slowly coming back. But this hazel, this is uh, one of the ways you know you're in an old farm field. And um, I know in the south in the United States, because I've walked through a lot of them. Uh, but I imagine up here, too, uh, things like brambles. If you've been out in the woods and you have those purpley, uh, what do they call them here, brambles, green, green briar, 
purple. It's got like a purple stem and a lot of thorns on it, and it's like this high and you can't walk through it. Okay. That's a really common plant that comes into fields 50, about 50 to 100 years after they've been abandoned. And then you see eventually larger trees take over and shade them out. That's one way we know, oh, this is probably a field or some sort of cleared area 50 to 100 years ago. We can do the same thing here just looking at pollen. So over time, you can see the, the change. Uh, here, oak really takes over by the end, and then it gets all cleared again um, at these different dates. So we can kind of trace that. Um, and this is corroborated usually by archaeological finds. We see the, in, the coming in of the Neolithic or the farmers um, around that time. And so we, you know, we're looking to see if we can corroborate that with um, pollen analysis. All right, the next four microbotanical um, analyses are not as, I'm not going to go into as much depth because they're kind of a similar idea, just a different material. Um, so fossil cuticles, these are, fossil cuticles are the kind of the cell walls. It's like the skeleton of a plant cell. So here we have, if we're looking under the microscope, plant cells. Kind of looks like a brick wall. Right? So these cell, and then you know the cell and all the different organelles and whatever are in cells. I'm not in a biology class, so it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> but the walls are made out of silica, sand. Um, and these are you know, less organic. They have less organic components than the things around them. So when the plant dies, it's possible that you're going to have this cell or a series of cells uh, retained. It's called a fossil cuticle. And a fossil cuticle can be identified to the plant uh, species sometimes uh, or, or uh, genera uh, depending on, um, depending on the, uh, the person doing the analysis and how many similar species there are in any one place. Oh, excuse me. Uh, fossil cuticles are the, the outside layer of the plant, and the uh, phytoliths are the cells themselves. So it's basically the same thing. One, sorry, fossil cuticles are the outside, like the inner layer of bark and things like that, um, and the phytoliths are the cells themselves. Again, it's related, just slightly different parts of the plant. Um, and then similarly, uh, diatoms are just like phytoliths, except they don't come from trees or larger plants, diatom analysis comes from single cellular plants that have uh, cell walls that remain fossilized. And so you're looking at things like mostly algae. You see a spike in algae um, that can tell you that there's significant runoff that has a lot of, uh, that has a lot of nutrients for them, for example. Hey, now you guys get two free phone calls. Gosh darn it, I told myself to turn it off. Anywho, see now I'm on, that's my realtor and we put an offering on a house, so now I have to, ugh. Anywho, diatom analysis is algae, um, the remnants of algae that we can look at the, the rise and fall of those. And then DNA, of course, um, sometimes we can reconstruct what plants were there from plant DNA. 
Usually we get this out of what are called coprolites. You come across this yet, coprolites, anybody? It's fossilized poo. Because fossilized poo doesn't sound as smart as saying, oh, coprolite analysis. I did my dissertation on coprolites, because nobody wants to say, I did my dissertation on human poo from a thousand years ago. This is fossilized poo. It doesn't have to be a person's uh, feces. It can be animal feces, whatever. Um, but often um, the DNA of a plant will survive all the way through your system. And then we can. Um, this is nice because all these other proxies tell us, uh, tell us basically one thing, right? What are the plants like the environment? What are carpolites telling us in addition? What happened to them first before they became poo? It was food, right? So this could be anything. This is something people are putting in their mouths um, to eat. So it tells you more information like what, what people were actually doing rather than what they were experiencing. So yeah, we have pictures of the different cell walls. And um, here are some <clears throat> excuse me, diatoms. All right. Now, macrobotanical, as you imagine, the opposite of micro, or the uh, flip side of microbotanical. Macrobotanical are things you can see with your eyeballs. Um, even if you can see it with your eyeballs, it's perfectly fine for macrobotanical analysis to use a hand lens or a uh, magnifying glass. That's just fine. It still would be considered macrobotanical. It's just that some of us have better eyes than others, and some folks perfectly reasonably need some sort of minor magnification. So uh, macrobotanical evidence is large, visible pieces of plants. Excuse me. Large, visible pieces of plants. Usually, they're preserved because they've been carbonized, uh, meaning they've been burned. So you know, don't feel so bad. Like I burned my oatmeal this morning, uh, and so I had to scrape the black uh, burned crap at the bottom of the of the uh, of the pan, but because it is carbonized, all the everything's been burned out of it except carbon, and often that carbon leaves a uh, basically the shell of the uh, oat in this case left over, and so when you put that in the trash, it can if it's not broken up too much, it can retain its uh, shape, and later on someone could tell, oh, somebody burned their oatmeal uh, a thousand years ago. Uh, but more commonly, we see, th see things like seeds. Um, or these look like the caps of acorns, although I'm not sure that's what they are. I don't know what seeds those are, but often they will be um, burned accidentally, usually, and then preserved in, a, in an environment that's not being moved around and jostled, because once they've burned, you know they're very fragile. They can also be preserved by waterlogging. For example, remember I mentioned the bog men in um, Denmark uh, who were completely, they look like the collapsed bags of human beings. Um, in their bellies, uh, one of the, or in one of their bellies, they found uh, like buckwheat pancakes. Because he was completely waterlogged, there wasn't the ability of um, microbes to break it down. Uh, the other place that we can get macrobotanical evidence is wet clay. For example, uh, if you have a, a reed mat 
on the ground and you're making clay and you set your clay on the reed mat while it's still wet, it gets the impression of that reed and then you know, oh, they're weaving uh, mats out of bulrushes. Alternatively, if you live in a Maya house that is mostly made of um, uh, straight uh, small trees that you've cut down and tied into your wall and then you cover that wall with mud or clay because clay is a more specific type of mud uh, and then your house burns down it can uh, leave an impression on the clay when the wood burns away and this is how we know what branch or what um, species of trees were preferred by Maya for building houses and because they use these vines to tie one wall uh, stud, I guess you'd call them, to the next. And when that was covered with clay and then burned down, you could see the outside of the vine. And uh, botanists were able to identify what vines they were using. Hooray for macrobotanical remains. So let's move on to the animal environment. Um, in a similar way, we have microfauna and macrofauna. Um, unfortunately, it's not exactly parallel. Microfauna are usually just small animals, and macrofauna are large animals. It's less of a cut and um, dried distinction. It's usually microfauna. We're thinking insects, small animals, rodents, things like that. So rats are super common. Uh, fish, although fish bones are really hard to find, there's a saying among archaeologists: if you use nerdiest saying, if you use quarter-inch screen, you don't find any fish, and if you use eighth-inch screen, all you find is fish. We use different sizes of screen uh, to push our soils through once we're, you know, when we're excavating, and the standard is one quarter-inch uh, diameter. So, or excuse me. Um, dimension, so um, it, within a square inch we have you know, 16. However, if you go down to eighth inch, so it's, a, it's almost like a window screen, then you start finding fish bones because they get broken up into very small pieces. And so it helps um, when you're looking for food remains, you want to use very, very tight screens. Rats show up all the time uh, and they're good indicators because they hang out with humans. And so if you have rats, you probably have humans. Um, also, they can be kind of frustrating because, you know, if you're excavating, and this has happened to me, where we have perfectly nice levels, and then all of a sudden, there's like this, there's like this differently colored soil that I've been following down, and then at the bottom, there are whiskers, little skeletal ears. You find a dead rat, not a lot, not like no soft. There are no soft uh, bits left. It's all skeleton, but it's called a crotovena. Again, crotovena because you can't just say rat hole or rodent hole because that wouldn't do. Uh, so we have to come up with a fancy word, crotovena. It's I'm, I'm being a little like glib. It's perfectly fine to use words like coprolite and crotovena. Um, I'm just being kind of a jerk uh, to them. Anyway, so uh, you have to be really careful when you find rats to make sure that they are 
in their primary context and not in a secondary or in a, this is called an intrusion or an intrusive context because he has intruded into this otherwise uh, primary context and put himself in there. So you have to be a little careful with, with them. Um, insects are, it's rare that we find insects, but it could happen. Um, mollusks uh, are also considered microfauna, and mollusks are great because they have that awesome shell that survives. And uh, mollusks are very mm, sensitive to changes in climate. Uh, and so if you have a certain type of mollusk that prefers cold water, and then over time you see that change to a warm weather mollusk, you could see uh, changing in change in temperature. Right? We don't find as many bird bones as one would expect, although birds were very likely eaten. They have pretty fragile little bones. Macrofauna. Um, so microfauna are a little bit better at indicating the environment because macrofauna, these large animals, are able to put up with environmental change a little easier than um, the small animals. Not only that, they can migrate. So I'm talking about you know, large, um, large game, deer, um, elk, moose, uh, three meter tall ground sloths, you know, the usual. Um, we actually had a whole... Um, host of macrofauna here in the United States and North America. Um, we had things like the um, woolly rhinoceros, Galoptodon, um, the large ground sloth, and the mastodon. Uh, unfortunately, these folks were uh, slow, big, tasty, and not afraid of humans because they'd never seen humans before. Um, and so when the uh, humans first came on the scene, we see a drastic die-off. And there is uh, quite a hefty debate about whether or not it was completely anthropogenic or human-caused uh, extinction of these. There are also like large camels um, oh, and dire bears and dire wolves, which were like a grizzly bear is, excuse me, a black bear is to a grizzly bear what a grizzly bear is to a uh, dire, wolf, uh, dire uh, bear or a short-nosed uh, bear. They're bigger and meaner than grizzly bears. They're huge. Um, anyway, so we killed off a lot of those. It's very likely. Uh, some people debate, well, couldn't it have been climate change? Because the climate was changing at that time and becoming much warmer. We see the receding of glaciers and things like that. To which you could say, well, yes, uh, potentially. But remember, these are big animals, and they range across large areas. If it's too warm, they'll just head where it's cooler, right? Um, so they could have migrated to where it's cold. Um, in fact, musk oxen are one of the few surviving megafauna, excuse, uh, megafauna or macrofauna, uh, megafauna, because they uh, lived in such an inhospitable environment that humans weren't there to hunt them out. Um, it could have also been disease. If you think about um, when Europeans made it to the New World again later, uh, they brought with them diseases that uh, local North American and South American populations had, had not been exposed to, most of them coming from domesticated animals, and up to 90% of the population died. 90% of um, the North American population and South American population died out because of things like measles and smallpox. Something similar could have happened to these animals where um, humans came across the Bering land uh, bridge bringing with them new diseases um, and new animals. Because animals were going back and forth, too. 
And so the camelids, or the camels in, um, in uh, Asia, might have had a disease that these guys weren't accustomed to and then came over and it morphed and killed all the camels off. Perhaps, it's possible. But the same thing happened when humans got to Australia 40,000 years ago. All the megafauna died off. So it happened twice at exactly the same time that the humans arrived. So coincidence or not, we'll talk about that later. Um, so now what about humans have obviously learned to have an effect on the environment. And it's not just us with our industrial machines. Um, even hunter-gatherers will burn down a forest um, to bring up fresh green grass and shoots for the deer to come out and eat so they can shoot the deer, right? So uh, human beings have been affecting the environment for as long back as we know. But it certainly stepped, stepped up 10,000 years ago with what's called the Neolithic Revolution when farming and sedentary agriculture was invented and uh, caught on in the Middle East. <clears throat> so one cold climate, let's uh, go through these, a cold climate adaptation is fire. May seem uh, it's the butt of many jokes about like cavemen inventing fire and things like that. Um, and I should note, uh, cavemen is kind of a misnomer because caves are great in that they are protected from the environment. So a lot of the evidence we have from this uh, pre-Neolithic or Paleolithic time period is in caves, not because everyone was living in caves primarily, it's because caves are protected. There were plenty of campsites out in front of the caves or around the environment, but they've been destroyed by rain and other things. Anyway, uh, obviously this is a joke. No dinosaurs ever coexisted with human beings, but fire is an important uh, set or tool in our toolkit so that we can live uh, outside the tropical equator uh, that our bodies are uh, evolved for, right? We are really. Uh, you might also think of a micro environment that we create under our clothing. Cold uh, climate adaptation is inventing clothing because, like I just said, we are tropical evolved uh, primates and we like to be in a tropical environment, you know, 72 degrees or more and, you know, not too dry. And so we invented clothing to wear so that we have a tropical environment under our clothes. There you go. And we know when this happened because uh, in addition to head lice and pubic lice, there are clothing lice that are specifically evolved to fit underneath your clothing. Um, and so the DNA from the different lice tells us that we um, got clothing 120 to 80,000 uh, years ago. So not that super long. Um, before that, people largely would have been wearing like loincloths and things uh, just to protect themselves uh, from you know, local environmental getting caught on branches and things as you're walking through them. Um, but uh, we needed clothing, and so here's a bone needle. We needed clothing to move into warmer environments, and we can see that through the different lice because their DNAs di uh, diverge. For example, another proxy. So we know when humans stopped becoming so hairy by uh, the fact that we have two different types of lice, head lice and pubic lice. And if you, you know, examine these lice a little more closely, you can see that they have very specific sized claws that grab things. Pubic lice have larger claws and they can't grab the hair on your head and vice versa, your head lice can't grab your pubic hair. 
So, <laughs> by looking at their DNA and when they diverged, we know that about three million years ago, humans lost a lot of their body hair um, because that's when these lice uh, became separate uh, animals, really. And we actually picked up these pubic lice from gorillas because gorillas make really nice nests and then they abandon them and then, you know, um, Australopithecine, uh, Australopithecus and other pre-human um, ancestors would have then used those and then we got lice from gorillas, but they could only hold on to our pubic hair, so now we have two types of lice. Same thing happened when we got clothing, a third type of lice evolved. I know I'm running out of time, but I'm just having so much fun talking about pubic lice. <laughs> so, other small scale modification to the environment, humans preferentially choose locations that are better places to live in their estimation. So by knowing uh, where they're living, we can have some estimation of what's important to them. Are they near salmon runs? Are they near uh, stone tool uh, sources, uh, source of material, right? So we can use that location to help understand. That's one way to kind of shape your environment is to put yourself where you think is a better place to live. And I cannot believe, I did not finish this yet today, and we are out of time. I swear we will talk about those um, articles, so please make sure you've gotten through them. We'll pick up next time and finish this off uh, rapidly. And then we will, yeah, I've got like four more slides, five more slides. And then we'll jump into the world of the Maya after we've talked about some, uh, some articles. So. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.